If I were going to make um, a name for what I want to talk about today, it would be something like um, the title of an article. So this is the title of an op-ed piece in the New York Times from last Saturday, two days after the blackout in New York. Uh, it's a piece by um, Albert Lajlo Barabasi, who is a professor of physics at the University of Notre Dame and the author of a book called Linked, The New Science of Networks. And uh, the name of his article, of his essay, is We Are All on the Grid Together. And the reason that I could make this a valid topic for uh, a Buddhist class, a Dharma teaching, is that I think that that's the definition, uh, or it's another way of explaining the third of the three insights that the Buddha said were crucial to liberation. The first being the insight of impermanence, and the fact that everything is uh, passing away as it is arising, that there is no solidity, that it's all flux happening. And the second is the insight into suffering on the level of uh, daily lives, the fundamental unsatisfactoriness of um, the enterprise of life, trying to keep yourself comfortable is really hard. But really, it's more uh, th that second insight into dukkha has more to do, uh, my sense, with the, um, the habits of the mind that tense around challenging situations that compound difficulty, that compound experience into suffering. And I think that's the second of the insights that really is fundamental to understanding. And the third is the insight of anatta. And anatta is frequently uh, translated as selflessness, no separate self. And really it means that. It means in the context of ever-changing flux, everything is interwoven, interthreaded, inexorably part of everything else. But I like to say it more than emptiness. I like to think of it as interconnectedness, as um, a way of understanding the network of uh, cause and effect that uh, that underpins this ever-changing flux of experience. Uh, one of the uh, things that the Buddha said, uh, per perhaps it was one, uh, it was a Zen teacher later, it sounds like such a Zen thing to say in its terseness, but an explanation of causality. So because of this, that, that everything that happens has antecedent causes, more than one, has actually the whole of everything that ever happened before, if we think about it as a network, as an antecedent cause. And everything that happens is part of the antecedent causes of everything that's going to happen from now on. So it makes one's own, uh, the individual actions, very small in the network of causality in the whole uh, web of being, but also crucial that every single act has something to do with the whole of the future. There's a, uh, there are two uh, Pali words, hiri and otapa, that are the twin awarenesses that anything, one awareness is, they, they're frequently translated into moral shame and moral dread, which sounds pretty bad, you know, it sounds like the, uh, it sounds like, um, religious phrases that cause people to want to say, I am spiritual, but not religious. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but, and uh, they're, they're, when you think about them, I like them better and better every year, though, <laughs> because I like this understanding of them. They are the twin awarenesses of the fact that every single thing that anyone does makes an effect. Everything makes an effect. You can say, even not doing makes an effect. If I choose to stay home, and say, and, and, and part of that is everything has an effect. It might have a salubrious effect. It might be for the benefit of all beings. It might cause pain. Even if you, even when I behave with good intention, sometimes I cause pain. Don't mean to, but sometimes I do. So everything that I do has the possibility of causing pain. But also not doing, if I say, whoa, on account of that, I won't do anything. I'll just stay home, recluse, hermit. 
But that's also doing. It's not picking up my piece of the work in the world. So not doing is a form of doing. It's a sort of negative form of doing. And you think, whoa, what am I going to do? If I do, I could make, I could cause pain. If I don't do, I could also cause pain when there's stuff to be done. And the second part of that moral shame and moral dread twin teachings is that every single effect that goes into the cosmos has an effect forever. Just could be a very small effect, but ripples out forever and ever and in all directions. You could, you could think about that in a quite ennobling and uplifting way. You could think about every act of kindness gener- just ripples through the universe forever and ever, and therefore could be inspiring to, uh, uh, it is to me actually, to try to reconfigure my heart to kindness against all odds. Uh, that's why when we laughed just at the end of the sitting and uh, there was that moment of distress about somebody's car being blocked in, and all of a sudden there's a feeling in the mind, uh-oh, who blocked her? You can think, oh, it's great, car blocked, so many people coming to Spirit Rock, you know. Picks up your heart rather than to, people should see that they're blocking in somebody. You can either go for the, for the clenched heart or the open heart. And I'm really seriously thinking about how would it be to make a, a life that was dedicated to constantly re, looking to reopen the heart. I keep thinking in my mind, against all odds, against all odds. But I want to take out the all, against odds. I don't think it's against all odds. I think some things mitigate in the favor of opening the heart. Anyway, hiri and otapa, the awareness that every single thing you do causes an effect, and the awareness, which might be to cause pain, and that it would ripple out forever and ever and in all directions, and uh, make an effect. My sense of that deepening awareness is not that one does nothing, but that one pays more and more attention, that I pay more and more attention to the attention of my heart, to what sort of a shape is my heart in. Not always in a great shape, but maybe it's you think to yourself, um, I don't feel very well today, I have a stomachache and a headache, maybe I shouldn't go out on the highway. Maybe if I have a stomachache and a, and a headache, I shouldn't get involved with in, with situations that will be challenging to me in general. Maybe I'll do the wrong thing. Maybe I should take care of myself. There would be ways to say, uh, I could take this as quite a serious and uplifting practice. If every single thing makes a difference forever and ever, all I need to do is take care of myself. And then my very being will make a difference for the good forever and ever. Anyway, starting from this On the Grid together, it's a great article, so I want to read you a little bit about it, because it's very interesting, I, I really thought a lot about it. Um, so this was a whole, uh, whole section in Saturday's Times about the uh, blackout. By the way, I was in Massachusetts when it happened, and um, Massachusetts was curiously unaffected by it, all around the whole upper the whole into Ohio it started actually in Cleveland and all of New York but uh, Massachusetts we were just going along we didn't know about it. but a number of people phoned me you know and it was so it, it reminded me so much of when something happens to a hundred million people the people who it didn't happen to think about where's my person I'll call them are you all right and the fact that in the midst of a hundred million people we have a few people who are particularly dear to us uh oh Sylvia's in Massachusetts. Where are you? Ring, ring. Are you okay? Are your lights on? <laughs> Once power is fully restored, it will take a little time to find the culprit. Most likely, it will be a malfunctioning switch or fuse, a snap power line, or some other local failure. Someone will be fired, promotions and raises denied, and lawmakers will draw up resolution, legislation guaranteeing that this problem will never occur again. <laughs> Something will be inevitably missed, however, during all this finger-pointing. This week's blackout has little to do with faulty equipment, negligence, or bad design. Uh, President Bush's call to upgrade power grid will do little to eliminate power failures. The magnitude of the blackout is rooted in an often ignored aspect of our globalized world. And this is the phrase that caused me to cut this out of the paper. 
vulnerability due to interconnectivity. And I like to move that out into the realm of human beings. We are all part of each other's lives. Vulnerability due to interconnectivities. All those people who phoned me and wrote me emails and said, are you all right, are vulnerable, whether or not they're in that power failure, to the fact that they love me. And they thought that I was. You know, that other forms of vulnerability. In the early days of electricity, all power was produced locally. First, each neighborhood, later each city, had its own power plant. Local generators had to satisfy peak demands of hot summer nights when everything from air conditioners to televisions run full power. That means that the generators were idle most of the time outside the peak hours. That extra capacity was shared as utilities learned to decrease costs by connecting their facilities and helping each other out during peak demand periods. The current power grid linked up formerly isolated systems with enough wire to stretch to the moon and back. It requires only a computer keystroke to redirect power produced in New York to the Midwest. With thousands of generators and hundreds of thousands of miles of lines, the network became so interconnected that on a normal day, a single perturb perturbance can be detected thousands of miles away. This created a whole new set of problems and vulnerabilities and effects of which have been felt by millions in the last two days. Now it gets really important. Because electricity cannot be stored, when a line goes down, its power must be shifted to other lines. Most of the time, the neighboring lines have no difficulty carrying the extra load. If they do, however, they'll also tip and redistribute their increased load to their neighbors. This occasionally leads to a cascading failure. A series of lines becomes overburdened and malfunctions in a short period of time. This is exactly what happened in August 1996, when because of unusually warm weather, a 13 megawatt power line in Oregon sagged, hit a tree, and went dead. Power was redistributed automatically, but the other lines also failed, causing a blackout in 11 western states, two Canadian provinces. Cascade failures are common in most complex networks. They take place on the internet where traffic is rerouted to bypass malfunctioning routers, occasionally creating denial of service attacks on routers that are not equipped to handle extra traffic. We witnessed one in 1997 when the International Monetary Fund pressured the central banks of several Pacific nations to limit their credit. That started a cascading monetary failure that left behind scores of failed banks and corporations around the world. And it's important. Cascading failures are occasionally our ally, however. The American effort to dry up the money supply of terrorist organizations is, is aimed at crippling terrorist networks. And doctors and researchers hope to induce cascading failures to kill cancer cells. This is interesting. It depends on what you cascade. You know? uh, and with what intention? What gets networked? The effect of power blackouts, economic crises, and terrorism can easily be limited or even limited or even eliminated if we're willing to cut the links. But severing the ties would also cripple the network. Shutting down international trade would surely eliminate the impact of the Japanese central bank on the American economy, but it would also guarantee a global economic meltdown. Closing our borders would reduce the chance of terrorist attacks but it would also risk the American dream of diversity and openness. The events of the past few days, unwanted side effects of our network society, are just one of the periodic reminders that we live in a networked world. While celebrating that everybody on Earth is only six handshakes from us, we need to accept that so many of their that so that so are their problems and vulnerabilities. Has one more paragraph and ends with the ends with the, the 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 sense that since we are not going to be willing to cut our connections and probably shouldn't want to the only way we can change the world is to improve all nodes and links and it was such a sweet thing to end with because it sounds so much like the whole world depends on every single person that we are each of us such a tiny node and link in the interconnected huge web of being. But every one link and node counts because on the tiniest node, misfiring, it can all go down the wrong way. 
very, I, I, didn't you love that? I just found that so interesting, about being able to think of consciousness in the way that Rona omed over there and we felt like oming over here. And if there had been a bunch of people out here and they heard us, they might have omed out there and the other people could have omed. And maybe in one particular moment in some future decade, the whole world will ohm exactly at the same time and sit down and look at each other and change the way they behave with each other. I want to really use that, that notion of interconnectedness and um, because of this, that, that third insight of the Buddha uh, as a, a kind of framing reflection. Uh, there's a, the way in which it's so inspiring uh, to me, the, the idea that every single thing that I do matters. And also to be able to think at the same time, and that everything that everybody else does matters, that we all of us make the future in a certain way that's entrusted to us. And the, the kinds of ways in which, because cause and effect has such a huge ripple in directions that you couldn't imagine, there's a way in which the um, trustworthiness or the lawfulness of karma is um, astounding and, and, and from the way I see it, so impersonal. You know, I, I, I have never tremendously connected with um, karma teachings that um, suggest that what's happening to this, in this life now has to do with a life and a lifetime, behavior in another lifetime, which sounds to me very much um, like a story that would uh, teach people good behavior, kind of by frightening them. Um, then that actually never really resonated with me very much. Although the sense that things are the way they are, because everything else is the way they it is, is really very profoundly set in me. This is a story that I read in the New York Times in this whole issue the other day of um, just after the blackout. Um, in New York City, at just before the blackout happened, one of the things that happened was that a woman in her early 50s had been waiting for a long time for a liver transplant, was wheeled down the hall into the um, um, surgery theater to have a liver transplant. That very morning in Detroit, a 69-year-old person with a healthy liver had died. That liver had been harvested, that's the word that's used, and flown on ice to New York where it was just then landing. And uh, the woman had been prepared for surgery. She'd said goodbye to her family. Her family was in the waiting room. She is lying in the hall outside the operating theater waiting to go in, and the lights go out. And her physician has to then decide what to do. The liver is on its way. Liver should be transplanted within 12 hours. Otherwise, it's not useful. 16 hours at the maximum edge. 45 minutes go by, the power doesn't go back on, the doctor decides he can't take the chance because a liver transplant surgery is a long and complicated surgery and it requires a lot of things happening outside of the operating theater. Blood tests and matches have to be made all over the hospital. Different things have to happen even if the generators worked there. There are too many systems that are linked together that have to work. He decides he won't go along with it. He tells the woman we can't do it. He phones because he has a liver and transplant that's well. There are thousands of people on, on lists waiting for liver transplants. He calls the registry in uh, the Midwest, I think in, in Detroit, maybe in Buffalo, but somewhere, about what will we do with this liver that has now landed in New York State with all the airports closed and all the hospitals in New York without power. And uh, coming to the 12-hour mark, they, uh, they somehow organize with cell phones, because a lot of the phone lines are down, they organize 
a, um, a private airlift plane, a, a private plane delivery service that will go from someone that will bring the liver to Teterboro Airport in New Jersey, small airport, small airplane that will fly the, plant, the liver to, uh, and the people flying with it and taking care of it and, the, and keeping it refrigerated to uh, Pittsburgh and a delivery service in Pittsburgh that will rush it to the main medical center in Pittsburgh. Meantime, at 4.30 in the morning, a man asleep in Pittsburgh gets a phone call that says, be in the hospital in a half hour, there's a liver there for you. Goes to the hospital, and sometime between 5 and 6 in the morning, just under the 16-hour limit, a new liver goes into a man in Pittsburgh who is asleep. Doesn't that make your... Yeah, yeah. So the woman in New York is now on the top of the list for um, an available liver. She goes back to the top of the list. And she may or may not live long enough for another one to get ready. And a man in New Jersey has a liver and is doing well. And you don't know. You just don't know. You think to yourself, well, some sort of a cosmic plan that this woman shouldn't get it and he should. You know, I think it's just the way things worked out. You know, the, the power could have been out in Pittsburgh and not in New York. Could have worked the other way. It could have been this and it could have been that. It could have been otherwise. But it would have been otherwise. The part of that whole story that is not mysterious, why this one, not that one, not that one, not that one. The part of the story that's not mysterious is the human effort that, first of all, wanted to do it to begin with, the human effort, the human intention of the family of the 69-year-old person in Detroit that said, okay, our person is dying, but you can have whatever parts work, or the person, him or herself, who said, I'm dying, you can have that. From a person who dies, by the way, I, I got very more knowledgeable about it, having read several articles about it, but uh, it's better to have a young person's parts because they're less used up. But there's such a big need for parts. And um, if an old liver is a good liver, someone could live 10, 15 years with it. Somebody had an intention that my parts will sustain life in somebody else. Somebody else, a lot of people die without that intention. Human intention to be generous even after death was involved. Human intention to knock oneself out tremendously. Nobody said, well, you know, we can't do it. They all got really busy about doing it. The doctor in New York and the doctor in, in Pittsburgh and all of those people in between who had to rush and carry and take care. And it's such a... Um, Sometimes these days when the news is uh, so distressing about willful intention to cause harm, there's tremendously bad news yesterday about violence again, and, and it's so gratuitous. You think to yourself, in some people's mind, is the, the, the nurturing of plans to do gratuitous harm, and in other people's minds is, how can I serve? How can I make someone better? How can I contribute to human, um, to the alleviating of human suffering? And I think to myself, if that could be in some people's minds, it could be in more people's minds. Maybe it could get taught more. I don't know how it happens. People are beginning to think that altruism is maybe a gene. Uh, maybe you have, maybe, seriously, people are doing studies about this. Uh, that maybe altruism is a, uh, or maybe it's on a continuum, like intelligence. You know, that not everybody has as innate uh, intelligence ability, but maybe there's a continuum on the affluence. Maybe it has to do with how frightened people are. It's, I, I think probably if it turns out even to be biologically conditioned by genetic uh, configuration, it's probably certainly molded by social training by the context that we grow up in. I think one of the really lovely things about the religious traditions that I know is that they all have as part of the stories that they tell, 
stories about um, saint stories, bodhisattva stories, stories about people who are incredibly generous. You think about human beings uh, who have a whole continuum of generosity from really being able to give their own lives on behalf of someone else. There's an article in the paper this weekend that's very controversial about a man who has donated a kidney. A man of some affluence, apparently he's already donated, uh, I, don't, I don't remember how he came to his great financial fortune, but he's given $15 million to various kinds of charities, the kinds of ones I would support. And he's given a, a kidney to somebody he didn't know at all. Just like that. He said, I don't need two. Um, at the end of the article, it said, um, no, that nobody should have two kidneys in, until everybody has at least one. And nobody should have two houses until everybody has at least one. You think about that thought. You know, why should people have two houses if everybody doesn't have one? Three quarters of the world does not have an adequate house to cover them at night, an adequate dwelling to protect them. So anyway, it's a very controversial article because he's already given a kidney to a person that he didn't know just because he felt he didn't need to. Now he's saying he would give his other kidney. Well, he can't live without the other kidney. But hypothetically, he's not ready to give that kidney, but he said, you know, suppose there were a scientist on the brink of discovering the cure for AIDS, or there was someone who on the brink of discovering something else that will cure tremendous, uh, complications in the world. Somebody who knew how to clean up the atmosphere. Somebody who knew how to clean out the rivers. Uh, how to uh, fix the oceans so they weren't polluted. And they were just at the at the brink of discovering. They said, that person could do so much more good for the world than I. Why would I not give my life so that that person could do it? And this man's family is beside themselves. <laughs> they wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Even you, I mean, doesn't your mind say, wait a minute, you, know, you find somebody else with two kidneys, convince them, I mean, <laughs> that that kind of, makes, but you know, you think about it. So there's a whole debate, is, is he crazy, or is that the nth degree of altruism? It is a far, far better thing than I have ever done. You remember the end of A Tale of Two Cities? Um, someone actually gives their life for somebody else because they think that that other person really needs to live their life more than they need to live theirs. I'm going to go back to that story with the liver. The other thing that really so impresses me about it is um, the sense of um, not capriciousness because it sounds like someone operating with caprice, but the sense of, um, and not even random, the, uh, what would be the right word for that? What's the sense of that? The sense of impersonality. Uh, who knows if the woman who needed the liver in New York is about to discover the cure for any of these things. Maybe she's the most amazing person in the whole world. and. Maybe the person in Pittsburgh is not the most amazing person in the whole world. Or maybe the, you know, the whole thing about who merited it more. It just happened that the lights went out in New York and they didn't go out in Pittsburgh. When you think about, wow, there's a poem that, um, it sounds like Mary Oliver, but I don't think it is. I've been looking around for it. Someone showed it to me a few years ago. It's quite a, a it's a short poem. It begins something like, um, this morning I got up and uh, had a bowl of Rice Krispies with a uh, fresh peach cut up in it and milk. Could have been otherwise. <laughs> and in the morning I, uh, you know, cleaned up the compost pile and organized it and covered it with leaves. And could have been otherwise. And at lunchtime I had lunch with my partner and. And after lunch, we lay down and took a nap together. It could have been otherwise. You know, that, that sense of it could have been otherwise, which keeps every moment in the realm of the miraculous. You know, I met with a friend of mine yesterday who was recently in a car accident. And in fact, uh, 
It was because she wasn't paying attention. And, she, you know, and, and her whole life she pays attention. <coughs> and it was just one of those moments, no one was hurt. But it could have been otherwise. And it's not, you know, it wasn't late at night, and she wasn't too sleepy, and she wasn't, um, she certainly was not confused with drugs or alcohol or anything else. She was just, for a moment, distracted and didn't notice that the car in front of her slowed down dramatically and rode into it. The person in the other car wasn't hurt, and uh, she wasn't hurt particularly. Both of them shook up a little bit stiff, and the car completely wrecked up. But it could have been otherwise. And the whole sense of, you know, that we got up this morning and it could have been otherwise. We all got here safely, and it could have been otherwise. There's a way in which the mind sometimes thinks, at least mine, it forgets to think that um, when, uh, oh, maybe there's a, maybe there's a time uh, when I'm going home and it's tremendously stormy, and there are sometimes uh, places on the highway when the winter, when the rain is so intense. You really can't see in front of you, and you get home, and you think, oh, "I made it home alive." But on any day, you make it home alive. You know, you don't. Sometimes it seems more magical that you did. But that whole sense of it could have been otherwise. It could have been otherwise. I don't. I don't know if there were any. There was a woman who died in New York in that um, when the lights went out. Did you read about that? Who walked down a lot, a lot of flights of stairs in some building, Metropolitan Life or something. That would be an odd name for building to die in. But some building that she came all the way down from, an older woman, and, a, and it was a very hot day anyway in New York, and collapsed. Maybe, maybe, of, uh, maybe she had a heart condition, maybe the heat, maybe the fright of going down all the stairs, whatever it was, came down to the bottom and collapsed. And there were paramedics that were just outside the building, and they worked on her, and they worked very hard, and they tried to get emergency aid, and she just died. And it could have been otherwise, you know. But the whole, every moment of life is it could have been otherwise. And maybe this comes around to the reframing that in a, quite an impersonal world, not because we're good or we're bad or we took our vitamins or we didn't, or we were kind or not kind, or that it's coming to us or it's not coming to us. The fact that that really accompanies um, accompanies me a lot. You know, that why this and not that. This is that's sort of a, a, a sad thought, or maybe a, a little macabre. But I realized I'll show this to you. So it's, it's a sad thing. It's actually not a sad picture. It's a picture at 3 o'clock in the morning outside of uh, the hotel in New York, people sleeping on the floor. But in the last few years, we've gotten so used to scenes of people sprawled on floors when there have been bombings that I looked at it, and I got frightened when I looked at it. Then I thought, oh. And you look again and realize a strange world where we are so vulnerable actually I kept this picture and kept looking at it over and over again looking at it and liking it better and better it's like a reframe maybe it was healing a piece of my mind that has become um, so distressed and so stricken really with all those pictures of People sprawled in Bali or Jerusalem or San Francisco, Omaha. People sprawled because of some act of intentional violence. I've been looking at it and uh, using it as a corrective because here are people, quite with all their regular clothing on, sprawled on the floor, fast asleep in in Times Square at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I think to myself, it's very nice to say that in the middle of that, people could lie down in the middle of Times Square with all their clothes in those completely vulnerable and sprawled condition. Look at this guy in the front. 
He's lying like on his sofa. He's got, <laughs> he's got his hands crossed. They all of them are drinking the identical water bottles. So my sense is that that hotel got their water supply out and gave it to everybody overnight. You know, actually one of the one of the commentators, Frank McCourt. Do you remember Frank McCourt? He wrote Angela's Ashes, and um, he wrote a an op-ed piece on how it was to be in the various blackouts in New York. He'd been in. There have been three over the last period of time, and remembering them historically, and it's very well written. And in the last, and he said that you know in this last one, he's almost a little wistful that he wasn't caught in an elevator or someplace where you know he, that uh, his. He said, "I'm not going to have really good stories to tell about it." But he said, "I was driving to uh, New York to pick up my wife somewhere or another," and he said. Um, I, and it happened. He says uh, visually, you could see the lights go out. But he said he was listening to uh, the commentators on the radio about it, and he said, and this really struck me. He said they sounded a little disappointed to be reporting that there was no looting or um, bad behavior. You know that, that and I, I aren't you touched by that? You know that that looting and bad behavior is what really makes news. And to be able to say, you know, the lights are out in New York, and everybody is giving out water in the street, handing out, the people with restaurants were going out in the street and giving out the food because it was all going to spoil. People were handing out ice cream on the street. They took care of each other. I talked to a friend of mine yesterday who uh, runs a business, he's a, a major business in, and uh, all over the world, but his office is in Manhattan. And he lives in New Jersey. So I said, did you stay in your office overnight on Thursday? He said, no. He said, uh, I got a ride home to New Jersey. I said, with one of your colleagues? He said, no, I hitchhiked. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I did it when I was young. You know, he's a 50-year-old guy. He said, I hitchhiked all over the world when I was young. So here he is. He said, I went down and I stood by the tunnel going to New Jersey. <laughs> and I went down with a couple of my colleagues from my office. And I stood by the entrance to the tunnel. And uh, a car came by and they, the car stopped. And it happened to be that the folks in that car were going just to the town where my colleagues, who I was with, lived and offered a ride. And they said, oh, we won't leave you here alone. He said, no. I said to them, go in the car. I'm quite fine alone. So they got in that car. The next car picked me up. So there was another guy. He said, he lived in the, in the town next to me in New Jersey, but he drove me to my house. You know, this is really what most people do. I really think, um, I, I really, I really, really think, and maybe you're right, maybe this is a, a reconfirmation of that, that for sure there are people confused, um, frightened, <coughs> overwhelmed, not in touch with their naturally good heart, who in fact, under circumstances of challenge, respond in a way that causes more pain into the world. But I think for the most part, and this, this is another piece of very nice um, core religious teaching, I think for the most part we have good hearts. I think um, Someone said, keep, asked me recently, they said, uh, do you really suppose, and we're talking again about, is there so much greed and hatred and delusion, confusion and ignorance in the world that uh, all of our talk about it and all of our uh, commitment to cultivating goodness and kindness in our own life, maybe it's too late. Maybe the forces of passion will take it over. And, do you really think the forces of good will prevail? And I end up often saying, I, actually, I don't know. How could I know? I don't know. It seems to me sometimes like the forces of passion are quite overwhelming. But I am f as sure as I could be that even if the enterprise doesn't work and the forces of good do not prevail, there will be at the end of time the people who... Uh, were in touch with the happiness of connecting with their good heart, will be at the last minute taking care of the other people as the enterprise goes down. You know, if the ship sinks, 
there will be people at the last minute consoling. And the consoling itself at that time will be the source of, uh, if not happiness, it'll be the source of fulfillment. I think there's something about the imperative of the good heart. Um, I think we do that not because it's mandated by any religious tradition, Buddhism or any other one. I think we do it because our own heart mandates it. Because if we did anything else, we wouldn't feel good. That's, I think, the great liberation, the discovering that one's own heart feels better taking care of people, that that really is the deep insight uh, into mudita, that really discovering the joy of connection with other people and really uh, joy at their moments of happiness. You know, um, when you have a relative who does something um, good, I think a lot about I think a lot about familial pride. You have a relative that does something good, you feel good, and you're like, good for my team. Um, if you come from a tribal tradition like I do, someone in the tribe does something good, you feel good. Someone in the tribe does something not good, you feel bad, and you, they're even not a person you know, but it's a kind of a, it's a tribal thing, I think. If Americans do good in the world, I feel good, and when they don't, I don't. But what if what if all of those all of those limiting characteristics were seen through as being heuristic um, groupings? I mean, it's convenient for me to say these are my these are my ancestors and these are my kin because I know who to invite to a family reunion. You know. They're, they're, uh, and who to write on the birth certificate, and you know, I can show my grandchildren their great grandparents. But uh, I think actually the Buddhist teaching and this grid teaching, um, and all of these folks lying on the floor together, um, at the, who at that moment have constituted a family, are really more the larger teaching of we could be a family, this whole world going to have to be a family this whole world to make it. We're all on the grid together. I like that name of that article very much. And everybody's link in the grid makes a difference. I like to look around and see different ages and different colors and shapes and think to myself, we are representatives of that whole grid of people. We're all on the grid. Nothing that happens doesn't have antecedent causes, and every one of us a cause of what will happen. I think part of the imperative to keep myself going is the idea of um, it could have been otherwise. And as, a, as an energizer of my own intention. Not as a way to be mad at myself, or not as a form of scrupulosity, but this world could have been otherwise. It can be this minute otherwise. It, it, it can't be this minute otherwise because it's what it is lawfully, but it can be otherwise tomorrow by the actions of all the people in it today. I actually see signs of it changing. I've been reading a, a magazine called Hope. And a number of people here have been bringing in the magazine Hope. I see that it's 10 minutes to 11. Um, well, I think that the last thing I was going to say anyway has to do with uh, uh, mothers. This is a good thing because um, uh, everybody who had a birthday had a mother. Uh, <laughs> everybody here had a mother. The, the Buddha said that everyone at some point in the, the history of the world, we have been each other's mothers. Um, I don't actually, I've, I've, I've thought about that as a, as a literal thing, been each other's mothers. You know, the, permut the, the permutations and combinations, the numbers. But maybe in the sense of giving life, 
by, by being responsible in every moment for our place on the grid, we continue to be each other's mothers. Um, there were a couple of articles in the paper about last Friday being the Feast of the Assumption, and there was a very good article by uh, Andrew Greeley in the Times about uh, the, the figure of Mary as uh, uh, the, the central, um, what did he call it, the predominant reflecting the feeling of a cosmos in which the, everyone is uh, loved in the way uh, a mother loves and uh, cares for a newborn child. Uh, and then talking about uh, the figure of Mary as the most powerful religious symbol in the last 15 centuries of Western history. I was thinking about uh, the powerful image in uh, Buddhist uh, tradition of the uh, heart of metta, which is also a mother image, just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child. It's the same. Um, so I think maybe we could expand it from mothers and children to people and people that they are connected to. The, maybe one of the most powerful images for me is the, the uh, Avalokiteshvara image of a thousand hands. You see the thousand hands of the Bodhisattva. She has a thousand hands around her which are able to respond to the needs of a thousand beings. So I would like to do two things. I'd like to invite everybody who has a birthday in the month of August to come up here and get a blessing. And everybody else to take uh, two of their thousand hands and uh, and hold the hands of the people next to them. So we are all on the grid together. Ted, you come over here. There we go. We all fit ourselves in, all our birthday people. Come, come, come. Nancy has a little room over here. Okay. I don't get to say my name is Sylvia because I had my birthday last month, but you get to say <laughs> my name My is name is Eleanor. And uh, my birthday And my month. birthday is August 15th. Is that today? No, no, no. No, no, that was. Right. That was. Okay. Uh, my name is Margie, and my birthday is the 23rd, Saturday. Okay. My name is Pat, and my birthday was August 13th. Mm -hmm. My name is Ted, and my birthday was August 18th. Aren't you 15? 15. It's a very big number for Ted. <laughs> I'm 60. I was just 60. Oh, you were 60? Right. That's a very yeah. big number for yeah. you. Thanks. Anybody else has a good number? Or just an ordinary okay. number? <laughs> 70. 70. Whoa. Whoa. We should sit in sized places or something. <laughs> oh, we've got a baby. Wait, wait, wait. We got a wee baby. Okay. My name is Ed, uh, August 9th, 79. Okay. There you go. My name is Susanna. My birthday's the 23rd. <laughs> Whoa. And Hi. this is? This is Cruz. <laughs> oh, look at Cruz. Cruz's birthday is day before yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> August 8th. August 8th. Oh. And I'm August 26th. And you're August 26th. And this is Leo. Baby sister, and she's actually September 2nd. Oh, uh, well, well, listen, Rio, come up here and sit over here because you could be in the September, you can be in the August for us. <laughs> okay. How about if I could have Cruz? Can I have Cruz for sure. a minute? That's my best thing. It's a wee baby. Ooh. I can touch him up because I'm the big sister. Yes, you are. <laughs> Is he cute? Look at that. So his birthday is what? August 8th. August 8th. That makes it 11 days. He's 11 days? Oh. Oh, wait a minute. So what blessings would you like to say for all of the birthday people, including Cruz? Oh, may you have a wonderful life. And your parents thrive and your sister thrive. Oh, look at a smile, smile, smile. See that? <laughs> 
So what do you want to say for all these big people who were 50 and 60 and 70? They're all good numbers, Ted says. Everybody's got a good number. What should we say? Should we say meta resolve for everyone? May you feel protected and safe. May you feel contented and pleased. May your physical bodies support you with strength. May your lives unfold smoothly with ease. Oh. Must sing happy birthday. <laughs> happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Oh, Cruz got up, by the way. He woke up. Oh. 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 May we all be in the grid. <laughs> Amen. May we all be in the grid. What else do you want to say? Special intentions. May you inherit a world of peace. May we be part of that world of peace that you inherit. May we be consecrated really to making it a world of peace. A hundred years from now, may you be telling people that your mother told you that a hundred years ago when you were 11 days old, you got blessed by a community of blessers in a tradition of peace. We are lucky, aren't we? We are all blessed. We are a community of blessers. We are a world of human beings who I think are inherently blessers. I think about our maybe mission. It's a hard word to use. Let me think another word. Uh, maybe our challenge is to remind everybody that we meet that the potential, in fact, the imperative of the human heart is to bless. It redeems itself when it blesses. It produces happiness in the life of the blesser. And it spreads blessedness in all of the world. May it be so that that happens speedily and in our day. <coughs> so, take care in the week and I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.